Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I'll flip over to chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You may be seated. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The beginning, you know, matters. A basic understanding of whether you're a builder or a hunter or maybe an author or even a preacher that the first things matters, the beginning matters. You know, if a builder doesn't get the first things right, if he doesn't get the foundation right, there's a good chance that the rest of the project, very little will be right. And even if he does get the rest of the project right, the project is still fatally flawed if the foundation isn't correct. The beginning matters. The first things matters. Um, you could, well, you remember what Jesus said about the house built on the sand. If a hunter, when an opportunity for meat presents itself, is a little bit off in that beginning when he aims his firearm or his bow in the direction of that deer or turkey or whatever it might be, if he's off just a little bit as he prepares to shoot at the beginning, you know, there's a good chance that he's not going to have venison for the table anytime soon. An author of a book or an article might spend a long time deliberating and on how to say the first sentence, the first paragraph. The beginning matters, you know. He may spend a long time tweaking uh, that, that beginning. Aaron Lapp might know about some of these things. A preacher understands that some of the success of the sermon will be contingent on what is said early on when people for sure are listening. What he says at the beginning, the beginning matters. What he says at the beginning of the sermon might be some of the very most important things and the most caught things. In fact, um, I don't think Dave Stolzfus would mind too much if I tell you a secret about him, that when he gives a sermon, he thinks so much of the first words when he gets up that he typically memorizes the first paragraph. 
of what he would like to say at the beginning. The beginning matters. And I think you understand and even kind of agree with all of that. So I ask you the question, so if it matters so much, the question is, why does it matter? Well, in attempting to answer that, uh, the first two professions that we thought about, the builder and the hunter, you know, well, his success depends on making sure the beginning matters. His success depends on that, but not only that, but even his standing in the community. You know what it's like to miss a deer and have to go into the cabin and tell people about it, don't you? For a builder, the success of the project, yes, but his standing in the community and in the profession, it all matters. The beginning matters. Oh, for the last two professions that we talked about, you know, the author and the preacher, well, like we said, the introduction and the interest depends on it, and also the invitation to enter in and to listen and to hear and to learn. It, it all matters. The beginning matters. How does the Bible, here's the next question, how does the Bible, the world's greatest book, you know, how does the Bible measure up to this the beginning matters mantra or truism. Well, that's the subject of largely of the sermon today. Thinking about the very beginning and how God chose to do that, what he chose to say, how he said it, those kind of things is what we'd like to be looking at today. So, of course, we look at the first book of the Bible. Beyond that, you know, the beginning. We'd like to look in one part, at the book of Genesis, just a bird's eye view, just a general book of the beginning. But then we'd like to zero in a little bit more and think about Genesis 1 through 11, and then a little bit more and go to Genesis and talk and think about Genesis 1-1. The beginning, you know. Before we get to that, though, let's think of something else, something before the beginning. Is there something like that? Before the beginning. So the outline, three parts. Let's think of before the beginning, and then the beginning of the book, and then the beginning of the beginning of the book. Thinking about, what about before the beginning in this sermon, which I entitled, In the Beginning, God. In the Beginning, God. What happened before the beginning? Genesis, that word, Genesis, means beginning or origins. And it's positioned, of course, in the beginning of the world's greatest book. How can there be something before the beginning? Well, there was. There was one thing before the beginning, before Genesis. And you know the answer to that, that's God. Genesis gives... The book of Genesis gives the beginning of everything but God, it's been said. So God was before the beginning. God always was. What did that life, God's life, what did the reality of God, the phenomena of God, is that the right way to say it? How, what did that look like before the beginning, before the world was made, before the world was created? 
God, in his word, graciously gives hints about some of those things, about the reality of God before the beginning of the world. And as I think of this, before the beginning, what all was happening up there in heaven before God created the world? God transcends the world. God is much bigger and older than the world because he always was. Let's think about that just a little bit. And I credit Warren Wiersbe for a number of these thoughts in this section of the sermon. And let me just also say that Warren Wiersbe is one of a number of men who I will quote or a number of men who, in which I gathered some in, information from in this sermon. And these men whose names I'll give, I don't know them. And I just suspect that there is a number of points of Christian life and practice and even theology where I, where we would differ from them quite a bit, or somewhat, somewhat or quite a bit. So why would I, so if I quote from them, that doesn't mean that I'm making a blanket endorsement of these men. So why would I use them then and quote from them? Well, let me just say that these are learned and articulate men and I appreciate how that they stand on the inerrancy of scripture and the literal interpretation of scripture especially uh, in regards to things of the beginning and I think that we should be able to learn from them uh, to me it's impressive that men of their stature are willing to stand up against the flow the secular flow of society and say what God says here he really means what God says here is important, it's true, and it's authoritative. So it's in that vein that, we'll, uh, that I'll be quoting and reading uh, from some of these men. Well, what did that life, what did God's life, the reality of God, the person of God, how, what was that all about there before the beginning? Let me just say that three points here that I'm thinking about. God, number one, God existed in up there. God existed in grandeur and in glory. And let's just think of three attributes of God as we think of his eternal past before the world began. The first of those is the, that we insist because of what the Bible says that he was self no no he is self existent was and is he is self existent god up in heaven long before the world began because he has always been he is self existent that means that he can live and thrive without any help from anybody anywhere anytime we can hardly grasp how the grandeur of that there is God has no need for air to live he has no need for food he has no need for zillions of items that we need for life and comfort he doesn't need, and neither does he need anyone else as we think of that let me just look at two verses that speak a little bit to that and you might be thinking of other verses 
as we think of the self-existent nature of God. John 5.26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Did you get that phrases? Those phrases, the Father hath life in himself, the Son hath life in himself. Acts 17, oh, 24, I think. Thinking of the self-existent God and what that really is like. Not Acts 25, Acts 17. Paul here on Mars Hill says, and just listen again, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in tabernacles made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath, and all things. He is the self-existent one. Think of your need. Think of what it might take for you to be comfortable temperature-wise in this world. Sometimes you will need open, or at least in days gone by, we needed open windows, didn't we? And then when the windows were open, then we needed screens. Today, we are thinking more about Fans, but air conditioning, and especially the central heating, the central AC kind. We think of furnaces and insulation in the walls, and we think of blankets, and we think of coats, and we think of hankies to keep the sweat, or try to get the sweat from one's brow, and lots and lots of other things that we need just to be comfortable so we don't freeze or so we don't melt. And that could be multiplied many times over. We are so far from self-existent. If I was the only person in the world, even if I'd have the air conditioning and the, food and the correct temperature and everything that I need in food and clothing and shelter, if I was alone in the world, if I was completely alone wouldn't last long. Maybe you wouldn't either. We are not self-existent, but God is. He is self-existent. A.W. Tozer said, quite a while back, but it rings so clear to me today, and I quote A.W. Tozer, God has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. God is self-existent. So in that time before the beginning of creation. Before Genesis 1-1, God was up there. He was self-existent. He is self-existent. He is also eternal. And if, if the concept of self-existence is hard for me to grasp or fathom, I think his eternity his eternal attribute is even more mind-boggling. Anytime that you want something to think about something that you just can't understand and that you want your mind to be boggled in, just think about how God always was and he always will be. We could look at verses like Genesis twenty-one thirty-three, and I read from Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven as we think of the 
eternal nature of God. Deuteronomy, 20, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. And you notice that word eternal, and you notice that word everlasting, did you not? Lots of other scriptures we could point to. Romans 16, 26, and now, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. He is not only God, not only before the beginning was and is God self-existent, but he's also eternal. And the third thing that we should think about just a little bit, especially in relation to how things were up there in heaven before the world began is that even back then, Jesus, or God, was immutable. He was self, he's self-existent, he's eternal, and he's immutable. What does that word mean? It carries the idea of being changeless. When something is immutable, it is changeless. But there's a further meaning, and that is that it's unchangeable. Do you see the difference between something that's changeless and something that's unchangeable? There are some things that seem like they just stay the same. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't possibly change sometimes. But that's what unchangeableness means. That idea is carried in the word unchangeable. Not only changeless, but God is unchangeable. There is a theory out these days called process theology, which basically, in layman's terms, says that God is a limited God. He's limited in some ways, but the nice thing about it is that he's becoming less limited as time goes on. He's, he's improving, in other words. Does that strike you as being particularly heretical? I kind of hope it does. Ridiculously heretical. For one thing, limited, that word, and God doesn't go together at all. They cannot be put together. That's an antithetical thought. Those two words are worlds apart. If God is God, then he's limitless. He's immutable. And we could also ask the question, as we just think about this heresy a little bit, if God is becoming less limited, then what particular power is it that's making him less limited? And whatever that particular power is, that is then more powerful than God, right? And if that's the case, then that power is God and God isn't. No, 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 no. God is immutable. And I'm thinking of Malachi 3.6, that verse. And whenever I think of Malachi 3.6, I think of John Ulap, who has quoted that various times here behind this pulpit. And I'm just wondering, John, would you like the privilege of quoting that just now, standing up and quoting it, or do you want me to? All right, Malachi 3.6 uh, I don't know if I can, but I can turn to it. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is immutable. He is unchanging. And 
how thankful for we are that he is immutable. Are there verses that we could turn to? Um, see if I can quote James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, in, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is immutable. He is unchanging, but he's also unchangeable. He's changeless and unchangeable. There's no limitations to God. There's no improvements. Nothing like that. Our God is far, 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 far above any of that. Any limitations, any improvements, any getting better or bigger or more powerful. He's changeless. He's unchangeable. So, God is self-existent. He's eternal. He's immutable. All of that and much more. Especially uh, as we think of what things were like in heaven before the foundation of the world. Well, not only did God exist up there at that time in grandeur and glory, especially um, personified by his self-existence, his et- the fact that he's eternal and that he's immutable, but secondly, God existed in loving communion up there at that time. God, the Trinity, you know, existed in loving communion. And I think we'll just keep moving there. We could look at Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. We could look at John 17, 5 to to notice the hints that the Bible gives about the communion that and the relationship that members of the Trinity enjoyed in that time up there, in that long, far distant past. The third point, God, number one, God existed in grandeur and glory. Number two, God existed in loving communion, the members of the Trinity. Thirdly, that in that time, God was planning redemption. How wonderful that is. Thank God that there was nothing of an of an oversight or a new idea or something that he just planned as plan B because plan A fit. No, 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 no. God was planning redemption long before the foundation of the world. Look, we should read Ephesians 1.4 where it says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We could look at Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, and doubtless other verses that speak about God planning redemption before the world began. God existed in grandeur and glory. He existed in loving communion. He, God was planning redemption in that time before what we call the beginning. Let's move on now and think about the beginning of the book. The book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. The very first book. And for a number of these thoughts, I credit Henry Morris, who died about 12 years ago. He was born about the time that my father-in-law was back in the... Well, he was born in 1918. And he is often credited, Henry Morris is, as being the father of modern creation science movement. And you might be familiar with Ken Ham. And I'm just guessing that you may have been at 
may know about the Answers in Genesis ministry. Isn't that an interesting name for an interesting ministry? Answers in Genesis. You could well have been at the Creation Museum more than once. You may have been at the Ark. Where are you, by the way? Why don't you raise your hand if you've been at the Ark and or the Creation Museum? Yeah, there are hands going up all over. Thank you. Juan and I still just want to. Henry Morris, he is, I think it's right to say, at least in part, that it's his shoulders that Ken, Mar that Ken Ham is standing on. Back in the 70s and the 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, Henry Morris was real prominent in that creation science and is still, and I remember as a young man back in the 70s and 80s, uh, the older men uh, talking about Henry Morris and how they appreciated him and what he had to contribute to, uh, on the truth of scripture and especially that of creation. As I think of that, as I think of Henry Morris, let me read what he says here. The book, of Genesis, the book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. That's the first words in his book, all right? We were th thinking about how important it is for an author. That's pretty provocative, isn't it? Let me read it again. The book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. wonder what you think of that. That's, so he says, and I continue to quote, The Bible as a whole would surely be considered, even by those who don't believe in its inspiration, as the book that has exerted the greatest influence on history of any book ever produced. The Bible, however, is actually a compilation of many books, and the book of Genesis is the foundation of all of them. He goes on, and you know that he was a pretty learned man, and he uses some big words. And I might just stop and try to explain them in more simple words, but stay with me if you can. If the Bible were somehow expurgated, and that simply means were removed, and you'll pardon me if I stumble over the pronunciation of some of these words, right? If the Bible were somehow expurgated of the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible would be incomprehensible. It would be like a building without a ground floor, or a bridge with no support. The books of the Old Testament narrating God's dealings with the people of Israel would be provincial. That means narrow or just a local situation. It would be provincial and bigoted. That means um, intolerant. Were they not set in the context of God's developing purposes for all mankind, the New Testament describing the execution and implementation of God's plan for man's redemption is redundant and anachronistic. And that means out of chronology. Except in the light of men's desperate need for salvation as established in the record of man's primeval, that means early history, recorded only in Genesis. Significant words, I think. 
Mr. Morris goes on to list 14 different foundations of origins that are given in Genesis. 14 different things of uh, which originated and are explained in the book of Genesis. Things like the origin of the universe, Genesis 1.1, the origin of order and complexity, origin of the solar system, origin of life, origin of man, origin of marriage, origin of evil, and on and on and on. Origin of the chosen people, 14 of them. And to cap that, he says this. And again, see what you think. See if he's on the right track. I quote, The book of Genesis thus, in reali- thus is in reality the foundation of all true history as well as of true science and true philosophy. It is above all else the foundation of God's revelation as given in the Bible. I really think Henry Morris is on to something there. As we think of the book of Genesis, do you think it's significant that the rest of the Bible, the other 65 books of the Bible, quote from or refer back to Genesis more times than any other book of the Bible? I think that was news to me. Do you think it's significant that the rest of the Bible quotes or refers to Genesis so often, so much? I hope the answer is obvious, and I hope you're saying a resounding, yes, that is very significant in your mind and in your heart. Um, Just a few little details about that. Adam, the man Adam, and the man Noah are listed, are each listed three different, in three are are given and named in three other books of the Old Testament. Abraham is mentioned and named in 15 other Old Testament books and 11 New Testament books. I thought that was pretty interesting. Jacob is mentioned and named 20 times in other Old Testament books and 17 in the New Testament. And there are over 200 quotes or allusions back to Genesis in the New Testament. Over 200 times. Makes me kind of think that I should devote a couple months of my personal devotions or maybe a year or two just in checking those out and noticing and learning from those. Over 200 quotes or allusions in the New Testament. The beginning matters, you know. The beginning matters. And God put great stock, puts great stock in his word and especially... In the book of Genesis, I wonder if I may say it, that Henry Morris says is the most important book of all. Having thought about the book of Genesis in general as a whole, let's think now about Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 encompasses about 2,000 years, you know. And the rest of the book of Genesis, the, the other 38 chapters, I should have checked. I think maybe that covers 
maybe 400 years or so. So the first 11 chapters covers about 2,000 years. And it's especially in Genesis 1 through 11 that many unbelievers and unfortunately some so-called believers have especially mocked or said or mythized, mocked or mythized. They say Adam was nobody, not a literal person. It's just uh, a myth like other myths that ancient cultures have come up with. That's Genesis 1 through 11. That's especially the part of Genesis that people laugh over and say really doesn't mean quite what it says. Genesis 1 through 11, that portion of Genesis is also the portion of Genesis that has had the greatest impact and influence on the New Testament. Do you think that God has a special purpose in seeing that that was done that way? I think that I know that he does. Over half of these 200 quotes or allusions that we talked about just a few minutes ago come from these first 11 chapters. So it's only about a quarter of the book, but over half of the quotes and allusions come from there. And every New Testament writer alludes back to somewhere in Genesis 1 through 11. And every, chap- every one of those 11 chapters are alluded to or quoted somewhere in the New Testament. Each chapter has something that's spoken of in the ba- much later in the New Testament. And as we look at that, those quotes and allusions, it becomes real obvious real quickly that every one of those writers, wherever it is in the New Testament, considered Genesis as true and completely factual and actual, actual, literal history. And because of that, because that's the case, that they believe Genesis to be true, and factual, and literal history. (coughs) Excuse me. Because of that, it is also authoritative. Was then, it is today. Authoritative. Reading from Henry Morris again. It is quite impossible, therefore, for one to reject the the historicity and divine authority of the book of Genesis without undermining and, in effect, repudiating the authority of the entire Bible. If the first Adam is only an allegory, then by all logic, so is the second Adam. If man did not really fall into sin from his state of created innocency... There is no reason for him to need a savior. 
If all things can be accounted for by natural processes of evolution, there is no reason to look forward to a future supernatural consummation of all things. If Genesis is not true, then neither are the testimony of those prophets and apostles who believed it was true. Jesus Christ himself becomes a false witness, either a deceiver or one who has deceived, and his testimony concerning his own omnipotence and omnipotence becomes blasphemy. Faith in the gospel of Christ for one's eternal salvation is an empty mockery. By all means, a little bit more. By all means, therefore, we must oppose any effort from any source to mythologize or allegorize the Genesis record. It was written as sober history, the divine inspired account of the origin of all things. No one, therefore, can hope to attain a true and full understanding of anything without a basic acceptance and comprehension of the origin of everything as explained in Genesis. And I do need to say that Jesus quoted or alluded to, to the book of, or to Genesis 1 through 11, six different times as recorded in the Gospels. And at least once of each one of the first seven chapters of Genesis. So we've talked of, thought about what was happening in heaven before the beginning. We've looked at the beginning of the book. We've looked at Genesis and then a little bit at especially the first part of Genesis, John, Genesis 1 through 11. Let's think now together about the beginning of the beginning of the book. I'm thinking about Genesis 1, 1. And before we leave Henry Morris, let me just read one more quote that he says, this time about Genesis 1.1. Henry Morris says, It is the foundation of all foundations and is thus the most important verse in the Bible. We're thinking about Genesis 1.1. And now I read from M.R.D. Hahn. And what he thinks and says, Once upon a time there was no time, there was no creation. From a beginningless, beginningless eternity, God was all alone in that perfect family love life of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There in that eternity, he counseled with himself and planned to make a creation and a universe. But he had nothing to begin with but himself. Yet at the proper moment he spake, and creation began, for in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. When the time came for his creative act, he reached down the hand of his omnipotence into the great abyss of infinite emptiness and threw it into nowhere, and nothing became something. And from his almighty fingers there streamed forth the universe with its planets and suns, its systems and constellations and endless galaxies, as he sent them forth, calling each one by its name, while he hung them in the chandeliers of heaven, garnished them with stardust, and made them dance to the music of the spheres. Picturesque language uh, that I found quite a number of years ago and still love that reading. We're thinking about Genesis 1.1 and just for a few minutes here 
Let me read a few quotes by Ray Pritchard in his thoughts about the importance and the foundation that Genesis 1-1 is. And here's one. The Bible begins with a wonderful first sentence. In fact, it is one of the greatest first sentences in all of literature. It contains only ten words in English and seven in Hebrew. Seven of the ten English words contain one syllable. One contains two syllables, and two contain three syllables. None of the words are difficult, ornate, or unusual in any way. There are no subordinate clauses, no pronouns, and only one preposition. I dare say you would be hard-pressed to find or write a simpler sentence yourself. And then this one. This is the first great truth. And again, we're thinking of Genesis 1.1. This is the first great truth God wants us to know. Know this, and the universe makes sense. Doubt this, or deny this, or ignore this, and you have missed the central reality of life. This is the first great truth God wants us to know. Know this, and the universe makes sense. Doubt this, or deny this, or ignore this, and you have missed the central reality of life. The Bible begins with a declaration, not with an argument. God never bothers to prove his existence. Better a giant should prove himself to an earthworm than that almighty God should prove himself to us. If you can accept Genesis 1-1, you won't have any trouble with the rest of the Bible. People who have trouble accepting the miracles of the Bible almost always doubt the truth of Genesis as well. But if God created everything, and if he did it by the word of his power, if he spoke and everything came into being, if that's true, then why should we doubt that he can also work miracles? If he can make the rules, he can break them, or suspend them, or change them any way he wants to. If he can speak and call forth the stars in the sky, then certainly he can cause one of those stars to lead the wise men to Bethlehem. If he can create a furry donkey, he can make that donkey talk. If he can cause a virgin to conceive and give birth to the Son of God, he can also raise his son from the dead. Miracles are no problem for those who truly believe the first Verse of the Bible. But for those who doubt the first word, everything in the Bible will come as a struggle. Therefore, I urge you to rest your faith on the firm foundation of the very first verse of the Bible. If you can believe that, then you can believe anything else you read in the Bible. Genesis 1.1 In closing, let me just read this excerpt, I like this, and hopefully this will bring the truth of Genesis 1-1 down to just a bit better uh, practical level. I'll read this, and then we will kneel together in prayer. 
Charles Simeon, the great 19th century English preacher, lived in this hope to the day of his death. As he lay mortally ill in his home, he realized that his time on earth was fast slipping away. He turned to those at his bedside and asked, Do you know what comforts me just now? I find infinite consolation in the fact that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. His friends asked him how that thought could give him solace as he faced death. He answered with the confidence of one about to meet his Lord, Why, if God can bring all the wonder of the worlds out of nothing, he may still make something out of me. 